Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and I'm so glad that you've joined us here again. Now, the scholar we're talking to today uh, is another biblical scholar, because as you know, we've uh, interviewed J. Warner Wallace of Cold Case Christianity recently, as well as Dr. Craig Hazen, who hails from Biola University. And today I interviewed someone that I've known of for quite some time, because back when I first got interested in Christian apologetics, I heard him speak at a conference in Calgary. He's one of the top scholars on biblical accuracy out there, and his name is Dr. Craig Evans. He is the John Pisagno Distinguished Professor of Christian Origins, the Dean of the School of Christian Thought at Houston Baptist University in Texas, a graduate of Claremont McKenna College, and received his MDiv from Western Baptist Seminary in Portland, Oregon. He has his MA and his PhD in Biblical Studies from Claremont Graduate University in Southern California, and has also been awarded the Habil by the Caroli Gaspar Reformed University in Budapest. He's a very well-known scholar uh, because he's written so many books, more than 60 books, hundreds of articles and reviews. He's given lectures at Cambridge, Oxford, Durham, Yale, and many other universities, museums, colleges, and seminaries. He's actually studied firsthand the Dead Sea Scrolls, and he's been featured uh, across North America and Europe on Dateline, NBC, CBC, CTV. He's been on documentaries on the BBC, the Discovery Channel, the History Channel, History Television, and he's actually served as a consultant for the National Geographic Society. So obviously, he has quite the list of credentials, and I was very happy that he agreed to join us by phone from Houston to talk a little bit about why we can rely on the Bible as a historical document. Well, I'll jump right into it. You've uh, been studying the Bible a long time. What are your areas of expertise, and what sort of things have you studied? Well, um, uh, I started out actually in Hebrew Bible and the book of Isaiah, but uh, when I received an academic appointment in New Testament, and so I shifted over more to the historical Jesus and the Gospels, and that's been my area of expertise for about 30 years. You've actually studied the Dead Sea Scrolls, have you not? Yes, I have. What was My uh, doctoral supervisor was one of the very first to see the scrolls back in the 1940s. His name, uh, he's deceased now, but his name is William Brownlee. And he and John Trevor are the two American postdoctoral students. You see, you read about them, you see pictures of them photographing the scrolls back in 1948. So, yeah, so I I had a great privilege to study with him and with Jim Sanders, who published one of the very first volumes on the scrolls in the Discoveries in the Judean Desert series, DJD, published by Oxford. It was on the great Psalm scroll that was found, Cave 11. So, anyway, yeah, so that was very much part of my training and so it was easy for me to shift into the Jesus area because I had worked on Aramaic and Hebrew, not just Greek. And uh, so anyway, when the historical Jesus uh, studies sort of reached this new explosion of interest in the 1980s, at about the same time the scrolls once again began to be published, the monopoly was broken, and then we realized, wow, a lot of these unpublished 
scroll fragments from Cave 4 have relevance, lots of them, for historical Jesus studies, I was well positioned to uh, be right in the middle of that. Anyway, yeah, that's what I've been doing for 30 years. What sorts of things did you learn uh, from Cave 11 that had relevance to the historical Jesus? Well, Cave 11 talks about uh, exorcism psalms, and we think we actually have the four exorcism psalms that uh, are mentioned, and one of them is Psalm 91. The other three are apocryphal, and they're designed for exorcism. So it sheds light on Jesus' use of Psalm 91, understanding it as an exorcism psalm that gives protection to the faithful person, protection against evil. Cave 4 was the real big uh, cave uh, that um, two-thirds of the scrolls were found in it, and there were a couple hundred that hadn't been published yet, mostly in fragments. And so you have the Son of God text, 4Q246, that matches very closely the angel Gabriel's annunciation in Luke 1 about how Mary will have a child. He'll be called Son of God. Uh, another fragment from K4, 4Q521, speaks of the, a Messiah who comes. Heaven and earth will obey him. He'll raise the dead, open the eyes of the blind, proclaim good news. And everybody could see the relationship to Jesus and his reply to John the Baptist, where Jesus says essentially the same thing. Uh, there's uh, another text that speaks of Beatitudes. You know, for the first time we had more than two Beatitudes together. So we actually had something that loosely matched Jesus' Beatitudes, blessed, you know, blessed, blessed, blessed. That's uh, 4Q525. So these are just some examples. Uh, one scroll, 4Q159, talked about how it's controversial about how, how often one pays the temple tax. Right. And, and that shed light on Matthew 17, where, you know, Jesus and his disciples are asked if they pay the temple tax each year. Now we know, okay, that, that was controversial. Thanks to that Dead Sea Scroll, we know that to be the case. So anyway, it's finds like that that, um, you know, helped us understand better the world of Jesus, how his teaching would have been understood by his contemporaries, uh, you know, and that sort of thing. The kingdom of God, for example, uh, we realize that proclaiming the kingdom of God is not some Hellenistic idea, as some scholars tried to argue, but is right at home at Qumran. There were texts, from again, from K4, that make constant reference to God's kingdom, his kingdom, your kingdom in the second person. And uh, so we realize Jesus' language uh, about the kingdom of God and uh, use of Isaiah right at home in early first century Judaism. Uh, Jesus' fascination with Isaiah, his frequent appeal to it, again, right at home. Uh, the men of Qumran and the Dead Sea, uh, that's their favorite prophet also. So uh, this kind of thing, like like the uh, Jesus' understanding of Scripture, mm -hmm. he, he quotes all five books of Moses, he quotes all three of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and he alludes to, I think it's eight of the twelve, quotes or alludes to eight of the twelve minor prophets, and then he quotes to, he alludes to or quotes the book of Psalms many times, and a few other writings. Well, the percentages are almost identical to that at Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
They talk about all five books of Moses. They talk about most of the prophets, and they talk about some of the Psalms, or not some of the Psalms, but some of the other writings. Mm -hmm. They, too, treat the book of Psalms as if it's prophetic. That's Jesus and the early church as well. Uh, So anyway, uh, you just see these lines of continuity. Now, of course, we also realize that this does not mean that Jesus was ever at Qumran or that he was in a scene. That's nonsense. The Dead Sea Scrolls do not speak of Jesus or Mary Magdalene or John the Baptist or James, the brother of Jesus. You know, this kind of nonsense that you see in the Da Vinci Code. Right. That's all. That's bogus. But uh, the relevance of the scrolls for understanding Jesus, his teaching, the early church, the world in which they lived and taught and so on, it all is clarified. So, yeah, the scrolls are hugely important, but often they're not important for the reasons that some people think in popular circles, but they're very important, of, you know, in, in what I think are very significant ways from a scholarly point of view that helps us understand better. I mean, there, there is a scroll from Cave 11 we've known about for 50 years, 11Q13, the Melchizedek scroll, which talks about somebody coming who will fulfill the uh, Isaiah 61. That's the very text Jesus quotes in his Nazareth sermon in Luke 4. And so he'll come, open the eyes of the blind, you know, uh, forgive sinners, remove their debts, and liberate the oppressed, and so on. And this figure who comes is a divine figure, and he's called Melchizedek in the 11Q13 document. But what he does is very similar to what early Christianity understood Jesus doing. So again, it's another important text that uh, helps us understand the development of early Christian views of Jesus, or what we call Christology. Right. What helps us understand why the author of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament compares Jesus to Melchizedek. There's no mystery any longer about that, thanks Mm -hmm. to this uh, scroll from Qumran Cave 11. So what do you say to secular scholars who say the Bible is an, a historically and archaeologically unreliable book that that can't be taken seriously, essentially, especially by people who use the Bible as, as their, their guide to how to live their life? Well, scholars who say that, they either don't know what they're talking about, they're unaware of archaeology and uh, what I would call contextual and comparative studies, or they have some kind of an axe to grind. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the New Testament, as you know, is not just, it's not all history. The Gospels and the Book of Acts give us historical content. Otherwise, the rest of it is confessional and didactic. But, uh, so if you just look at the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they describe Jesus going places, doing things. They they give us topographical and geographical information. They talk about Pharisees scribes, Sadducees, and others, what their beliefs are. Uh, They talk about certain places, certain customs and rituals, uh, and so forth. And what archaeology shows is that, you know, when that kind of information is provided by the Gospels, it is simply accurate. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so the idea that uh, the Gospels can't be trusted or they're just full of errors or something, whoever says that uh, is not very well acquainted uh, with the data, and it's been my experience that skeptics will say, oh, Jesus couldn't have said that. They say that because they either don't understand what is being said in light of the first century Aramaic-speaking Jewish world, 
What, in your opinion, is the evidence that most indicates the accuracy of Scripture? Well, <clears throat> it is what I call verisimilitude, and that is the incidental details as well as major uh, descriptions, details, claims of people, events, places. These things uh, match with what we know of the past. In some cases, it's pretty obvious. The topography, the geography, archaeology shows that, hey, there were, in fact, villages or roads or other types of construction here and there and elsewhere in the city of Jerusalem or whatever that uh, the Gospels talk about. The other thing is um, the study of names shows the same thing. Um, names to us might sound ancient, but if you do a real careful study, you realize that certain names were used in certain times and in certain places. And uh, spurious writings, writings that are removed in time and place that still claim to be reflecting the time of Jesus, make mistakes. They use the wrong kinds of names, maybe ethnically the wrong name. Or even if it is a Jewish name, it's not a name that was in use at that particular time. Well, the Gospels have been studied with that in mind, and they score very well. And so the named characters in the Gospels are, in fact, the names that were in use in the first third of the first century. Then you get second century Gospels, third century Gospels, which I know are popular with Dan Brown, the Da Vinci Code, and some scholars that are a bit on the fringe. But invariably there there are mistakes. Names that are attributed to certain characters come from a different time, and they don't, they don't authentically reflect the beginning of the first century. So verisimilitude touches on that. There are no fictional villages, no fictional city names, no fictional places in the Gospels. And yet, uh, in other writings that are um, remote in time, <clears throat> usually a uh, hundred years later, something like that, they make mistakes. They actually put a mountain in the wrong, you know, a mountain from the south is in the north or the other way around. Mm -hmm. uh, one spurious Gospel that Muslims like to cite, it's the Gospel of Barnabas, uh, which is not ancient at all, it's medieval, actually d talks about the disciples rowing their boat uh, across the Sea of Galilee and tying up the boat at Nazareth. Well, that's absurd. It's miles from the shoreline. And so that's what I mean. Uh, there are you know, errors of that nature in ancient writings, but not, not in the Gospels. So archaeology, topography, geography... Uh, reveals over and over again that uh, the gospel writers actually know what they're talking about. It doesn't prove that everything they say Jesus said or did, in fact, occurred. Uh, it's very rare that one has all kinds of proof for that kind of thing, but what you get is a very consistent picture that the gospel writers are well-informed, and they're talking about uh, people and uh, places and events that uh, authentically reflect the beginning of the first century. Yeah. And so uh, here's one of the things, uh, when this gets discussed or debated, I'll, I will point this out. Why is it then, if the Gospels are not accurate, as some allege, then why is it that Jewish archaeologists, who have no theological commitment to Christianity, uh, 
why is it that they make use of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Book of Acts, and, of course, Josephus, the Jewish first-century historian? They do that because these writings are found to be reliable. And when you're doing archaeological work, a lot is at stake. It's one thing for a scholar to sit at his desk and with his imagination dream up a theory. There's not much at risk there. But when you have dozens of people digging in the wrong place, that's a problem. So you need to know where to dig. You need to understand what it is you unearth. And so I know several uh, Jewish archaeologists. They are not Christians. There is no theological commitment. And they routinely make use of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts because they find them to be accurate. Right. And so they find a coherence between what the Gospels and the Book of Acts claim, again, persons, people, places, events, uh, and what they actually unearth, the lay of the land, the uh, topography, and then what it is they uncover. So it's that coherence, that agreement, uh, that verisimilitude that I was speaking of that makes you know makes it very easy to claim that the Gospels, in fact, are quite accurate. Uh, you know, you can go. You know, you can't go much beyond that historically speaking. Uh, history doesn't prove that Jesus was God's son. History doesn't prove that his death on the cross has theological significance. That's way beyond what any history can do. But historical work and archaeological work can show that the Gospels are reliable sources and are talking about a real person uh, and Jesus and real disciples, and these are the things that he said and did, and this is how he was perceived by his contemporaries. And that history and archaeology can show. How about the Old Testament? Because uh, I get that the, the, the case for, for the New Testament seems to be a lot more solid, which is why when there's articles published asking if the real Jesus existed, uh, those articles seem to be a, of two pendulums. One says he never existed, the other said that we know details such as he was married, etc. Uh, but you know, what about the Old Testament? Because obviously the further back we go, the harder things are to confirm. How does that hold up against the archaeological record? Well, you're quite correct. The further back you go, what it is is there's just less and less and less evidence. And uh, and then, of course, the topography begins to change, too. And so, uh, you know, that's true if you go back just 2,000 years to the New Testament period. But if you start going back 4,000 years and further back, then, then it, it becomes increasingly difficult we have piles of written materials from the first and second centuries. Well, we don't when you go back 4,000 years. And I say 4,000 years, I'm going back to what we think would be at the approximate time of Abraham. And so that's where the Jewish story begins. Now, you go beyond, further back than that, and it, it, we're just into the distant mists of, of the past, and it's very hard to track things. But... Um, Again, you have verisimilitude. There are examples of that, even though they're more limited. For example, the Jewish people uh, have these long-remembered stories here and there in the Old Testament about uh, living in Egypt. And they talk about certain types of foods. They talk about life in the Goshen. They talk about making bricks uh, out of clay and you know, serving Pharaoh. And so the historian looks at that and says, well, you know, that's interesting because the diet is inconsistent at points with the diet in Israel. Uh, the making bricks of clay uh, just did not happen in ancient Israel. That did happen in Egypt. There's no, no question of that. 
from our archaeological evidence and so on. And so what does that suggest? Well, the memories are authentic. And so they really are remembering uh, however these memories were preserved, orally, no doubt, um, maybe some writing. They are accurately remembering their life prior to entering the land of Israel. And so that's what I mean by an example of verisimilitude. So it isn't a fictional memory, remembering foods, customs, uh, construction methods, and so on that simply didn't exist, but rather they are remembering what we can see did exist. And so, and then you have a reference or two in ancient Egyptian inscriptions to the Hebrew people. It's not a lot of evidence, it's mm-hmm. a tiny bit. And so, again, you have reason to believe that, huh, these old stories probably do reflect real people, real places, real events. But what does make the Old Testament more complicated is that it isn't simply a narrative, historical reporting. Uh, You go way back in time, and there is no clear-cut understanding of history, what history ought to be. And um, uh, and that's a fa- that's an area of interest to me. Like, at what point do people begin to think about historical narrative, historiography that's beginning to sound a little bit like what you and I are in- are accustomed to as modern people? And so, history started out as just lists of of very narrowly understood events. Um, uh, like a king who has victories and battles, and it's just like annals and records and that kind of thing. That's how it starts out. And uh, the idea of continuous narrative came later. And so you get back to 1000 B.C., never mind earlier, and just the whole genre becomes difficult, and that's what makes it complex. And so when you look in the early chapters of Genesis, Modern uh, biblical scholars realize they're not looking at anything that comes close to ordinary history as we would understand it. Adam and Eve, uh, Garden of Eden, temptation, uh, the fall, uh, and so on. Noah's Ark, you know, and all these things. And so what we have at this point is uh, metaphor and parable and stories that uh, are attempting to explain uh, the significance of things, uh, just the way life is, uh, and, uh, and and of course that's where you know you get into some tension because some people want to interpret really old stuff like that as if it's history akin to what you have recorded in the Gospels, and uh, and so that's part of the complexity too. So it's more of a hermeneutical issue and a genre issue, and not simply a matter of history and evidences and archaeology. And such like that. If somebody wanted to read a couple of sources that would help them uh, kind of get a, get a lot more knowledge on on defending the veracity of Scripture, what would you what would you direct them to? Well, uh, Bruce Scheller has a great book about 15 years ago with Harper Collins, and it's provocatively entitled "Is the Bible True." And uh, and of course, Bruce uh, comes in as an investigative reporter. Uh, and a very thoughtfully written book. And he doesn't come in as a theologian. He doesn't come in as an apologist. He doesn't come in as a Bible scholar, and, uh, but just a reporter who reads the relevant literature, considers the evidence, and so on. 
And he would say pretty much what I've been saying, that when you do understand the genre, and some of the genre, of course, has, it isn't really historical, it's poetic, it's, para, it's parable, it's metaphor or whatever, but when it's rightly understood, the Bible does appear to be talking about you know, real events, real people. In other words, the Bible is true. But you can't, you really can't determine its truth when it, when it goes beyond, like this, it becomes a matter of faith when the Bible talks about God or explains the significance of events. Uh, at that point, you're, you are moving into the realm of uh, faith and there are other factors that come into play other than physical evidence and historical records and things like that. The book you're referring to is called Walking the Bible, right? Uh, is the Bible True? by uh, uh, Bruce Scheller, S-H-E-L-E-R. Bruce Scheller, right, right. There's another one by Bruce Feeler called, uh, called Walking the Bible, which is also very, very interesting about a Jewish man who, who hikes through the, the various sites that are found in the first five books of the Bible. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I'm, I, I don't know that work very well. I've read the other book, Bruce's book. But, yes, I, I have heard of that other one. Uh, that's very similar to what Sir William Ramsey did in the 1880s, 1870s and 1880s. He was a skeptic, a classicist, uh, a, a graduate from Cambridge. And uh, so he wanted to measure his own skepticism by walking, you might say, the book of Acts, and so he retraced the steps of, of uh, Paul the Apostle, as it is narrated in the book of Acts, and he was quite astonished at, again, the verisimilitude, and he, it changed his mind, and he ended up writing books defending the accuracy, historically, of uh, particularly the book of Acts. Well, Dr. Evans, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Oh, you're very welcome.